2: Welcome to the New Books
0: Network.
1: Welcome to New Books in European Politics. I'm Tim Jones and my guest today is Stefan Auer, author of European Disunion, Democracy, Sovereignty and the Politics of Emergency, published in the UK in May by Hearst and in the US by OUP during the summer. He writes, With the Eurozone crisis going back to 2010, the refugee crisis that culminated in 2015, the crisis, the EU-Russia relationship going back to the Ukrainian Maidan revolution of 2013-14 to the COVID-19 crisis in 2020, the EU has struggled to live up to the expectations it raised both in relation to its own people and neighbouring countries. This is not an accident. So what is it? Could this really be by design? In his widely praised new book, Stefan argues that the EU's hybrid form, falling somewhere between a multinational state and a multilateral organisation, comes closest to the ideals of Germany, its most powerful member. But this attempt to bypass politics has made it weak in an emergency, and there have been plenty of them. Today, he says, Europeans do not have the luxury of living in a politicsless world. Stefan Auer is an associate professor at the University of Hong Kong, having previously taught in Melbourne and Dublin, and twice held Jean Manet chairs. A prolific contributor to political science journals, he won the 2005 UAC's Best Book in European Studies Prize for his liberal nationalism in Central Europe. Stefan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for
2: a kind invitation and and a kind uh, introduction.
1: Oh, you're welcome. Um, Well, I've given a quick summary of the book, and it was very quick. Um, Could you set out your case more fully and your inspiration for writing the book now?
2: Well, the book is about contemporary European uh, politics. And and it is about uh, the hubris, I think, that the EU in many ways uh, represents. I I think that the noble ideal of European unity was uh, pushed too far, too fast, particularly after 1989. So if there is a culprit, I would name the the Treaty of Maastricht. And I hope we can talk about it uh, a bit more. But it was the Treaty of Maastricht that... uh, kind of uh, created conditions, for example, for the single uh, European currency, which is uh, one of the symbols of a truly post-national, post-sovereign Europe that the EU uh, was meant to become, in which nation-states were no longer meant to play a significant role. And so this is one of the key criticisms I try to develop, that this idea that you can move beyond nation-states may well prove uh, counterproductive when it comes to uh, democracy in, in Europe. So I'm quite agnostic about the value of European unity. My pri- primary uh, commitment is to democracy, right? And and uh, I think that the EU that was created through the Treaty of Maastricht is is kind of post-political and, and to some extent uh, post-democratic. So my main concern... My main concern, then, is whether the project uh, that seeks to undermine sovereign nation states ends up undermining uh, democracy in, in Europe. And this is something I believe that we could particularly observe over the last uh, decade, uh, the crisis decade. Uh, you, you, you mentioned all these uh, sources of, of, of crisis and, and with the rise of emergency Europe. So it particularly... Over the last decade, what we have seen, I believe, is that the EU governance oscillated between technocratic rule of rules and the politics of emergency. And and that very term, EU governance, I, I think, captures some of the problems that that the EU is facing. Right. So the EU famously doesn't have a government; it has a system of governance, and therefore it also doesn't have the kind of actor who who is responsible for for taking uh, key decisions, right? In, and in the moments of crisis, key decisions have to be uh, taken uh, all the time. So in the absence of government, then we also uh, don't have enough uh, democratic accountability. So I, I think that oscillation between uh, the technocratic rule of rules and, and the politics of emergency, uh, uh, the, the, these both uh, modes of governance are uh, damaging to democracy. And, and perhaps one, one of the key questions that animates the book is what is the appropriate size for a democratic polity to work? You know, uh, bigger is not always better, I believe. And, and uh, I, I wrote uh, particularly the final uh, in the final stages of the book. I worked on it uh, from uh, Hong Kong. I teach at the University of Hong Kong. And, and you don't need to convince uh, many Hong Kongers about uh, uh, that as a truism, basically, you know, that bigger is is not always a better, particularly when it comes to democratic governance, right? So the, the question of an appropriate size for for a democratic polity is something that that I find interesting.
1: Yeah, and the other thing, reading the book, is what really jumps out is that that Russia, its foreign policy assertiveness, and the contrast of this to to the EU. Um, is really a central theme of the book. Uh, how, how far into the manuscript were you when, when Putin starts to amass troops on the Ukrainian border? You, you got a author's note in at the end, but would you have changed anything if you were writing the book now?
2: No, I'm extremely grateful you are asking this question because it is a very strange moment in European history to be releasing a book, you know, that has the ambition to engage the reader about contemporary European politics. And of course, I deal a lot with history, history of ideas, so I do want to you know, identify continuities and, and changes in, in contemporary uh, Europe. But, but the moment is such that everything is up uh, in the air, right? Everything is, is changing so uh, drastically, dramatically, and not necessarily for the better. And I have to be upfront with you. So I basically finished the book uh, when, when the situation in Ukraine started deteriorating uh, uh, dramatically. So I, I submitted the manuscript, uh, uh, that is the whole book, more or less, by the end of uh, November. I negotiated with the publisher, and, and hers has been I- extremely uh, accommodating. So I negotiated uh, uh, with them that I would write a short author's note, more frankly in the expectation that the rule of law crisis, for example, uh, was still very much uh, you know, going to continue, etc. Uh, but then it, it so happened that I was writing these uh, acknowledgements and a short author's note uh, about four weeks after the start of the invasion, and it is strange because then the, the key point I try to make is that I might have uh, underestimated the potential for European unity, which is badly needed, of course, in response to that uh, horrible I- invasion. And and now uh, I, I, I'm thinking that unfortunately we have uh, we have this unity, and along the lines uh, that uh, are sketched. Uh, In the book, whereby uh, Germany, despite its bold announcement about the so-called Zeitenwende, you know, a new age in in German politics towards Russia and and, and the rest of Europe, uh, that Germany continues in in this uh, reluctance, in a way, to to speak the language of power, to think strategically, to to think about, uh, uh, well, big, difficult questions of, of war and peace in a frank Uh, Manner. And then you have the countries of Central and Eastern Europe who have always been uh, much more suspicious of of Russia, and the response uh, seems to be uh, much more robust. So there is that kind of division that I sketch in the book, uh, where one of the chapters, as you would have seen, deals with the EU Russia relationship. And and the key point of that chapter is again to criticize the EU's apolitical approach to Russia that Germany, in particular, uh, kind of uh, led. And, 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 and the clash is fascinating because what you have is the clash between this kind of post-sovereign, uh, post-sovereign post-political post uh, Europe on, on the one hand and, uh, and uh, uh, this very traditional sovereignist 19th century style uh, Russia on, on the other hand, right? And, and my fear uh, has always been that in that context, then uh, paradoxically, Putin's Russia is stronger uh, than EU's uh, uh, Europe. And, and I don't want it to be stronger.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, before we explore the detailed arguments in the book, you give a th- history of the, well, I mean, you mentioned the history of ideas. You, you, you give a a history of the theoretical foundations of the EU via Fried, Kozhev, and especially Kelsen and Schmidt. Could you take us briefly through this history and where you ended up finding the best framework for your for your thinking?
2: Well, I've been drawn to these thinkers for for a long time, and and unfortunately, again, I would have to say that particularly now after the Russian invasion of of Ukraine, they are more relevant than ever, and this is not accidental because, of course, they are. Writing at the time of profound uh, upheavals in Europe, you know, basically the, the the writings that I have found particularly relevant uh, were mainly produced between the first and the second World War. Right, so they were writing in the shadow of of these uh, two uh, catastrophes, and and so in terms of history of ideas, and and for for readers who will be interested in in the kind of debates about the relationship between law and politics. One of the defining conflicts, of course, of the 20th century, arguably, particularly in continental Europe, particularly in Germany, is in fact the conflict between Carl Schmitt and, and Hans uh, Kelsen. And, and and it's a funny story. I mean, on, on the one hand, the, to the extent that we are all... Uh, committed to liberal democracy you would want uh, Hans Kelsen to be clearly the winner of that contest and immediately after the second world war that seemed to be the case there is a funny footnote somewhere in in, in Kelsen where he just dismisses Karl Schmidt as, as you know irrelevant and that he had a fleeting fame there you know a Nazi uh, jurist etc uh, but when you look at the scholarly debates uh, today it's Karl Schmidt who is far more influential and i also found his Insights incredibly powerful, but so that that creates a problem. So th- let me just state very clearly that I do not try to uh, defend Schmidt. He's a horrible person, and and an atrocious uh, thinker when it comes to to uh, you know his political judgment regarding uh, Nazi Germany. He really openly supported Nazis and never uh, disowned that that. Uh, uh, misguided uh, uh, approach to, to German politics, but but his insights about the weaknesses of liberalism and the problems that we still face today are absolutely compelling. I find, and so uh, I'm not the first one to say that. But what I try to do is to think with Schmidt against Schmidt, as it were. I, I think that we are basically disempowering ourselves, not taking his criticism seriously. And this is exactly what what, what we just discussed in relation to, to Russia, right? The post-political uh, Europe is defenseless against uh, Putin's uh, uh, Russia, right? Uh, so I, I found uh, uh, Schmidt uh, perhaps the most interesting or influential uh, of those that you mentioned. But then uh, there are others you didn't mention that are important, Hannah Arendt of course uh, and you see, so they are uh, roughly the same generation, right Max Weber, uh, Karl Schmid Hannah Arendt, and they all shared a, a, a common concern for what they called in, in German das politische, the political, right which is a very peculiar kind of uh, sphere of, of human activity and and they feared the process of depoliticization, they all uh, wrote about it. And, and, and that is one of my concerns that I try to uh, uh, discuss in, in the book, does the EU represent uh, this kind of process of depoliticization and, and that is corrosive uh, of, of uh, democracy. And, and what Schmidt says about Russia actually is just unbelievably uh, interesting and, and, and continues its, its, its relevance. Uh, Mm. there is a quote if I I may uh, please, please do so I I, I cite uh, it's a quote from the the concluding uh, section of the fifth chapter that deals with EU uh, uh, Russia and and, uh, uh, there uh, it says, Europe lives under the gaze of the more radical brother, the Russians are the new ascetics who are willing to forego the comfort of the present for control of the future they will dominate their own nature for the sake of dominating external nature in others. If European intellectuals continue to indulge their passively aesthetic and rapture with the status quo, they abdicate their duty and privilege to lead, and they invite domination by their more radical brother. So the, the funny thing about this quote is uh, that this is a, a summary of Schmidt's argument uh, by uh, McCormick, right? And, and, and so, by Schmidt's argument uh, uh, during uh, the, the Second World War. And, and, and so, it, it's still relevant uh, today, right? I, I think the misjudgment of the threat of uh, this more uh, revanchist, militaristic, revanchist Russia that is particularly common to this day amongst uh, German intellectuals and, in fact, uh, political elites that misjudgment had had profound and, and, and hugely damaging consequences to 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 Europe. Uh, so yes, I don't have uh, the best framework, uh, but I I think there is a lot uh, we can learn also from the enemies of liberalism like Carl uh, Schmitt, and that's what I try to do in the book.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, since since we're uh, since we're quoting parts of the book, I'm going to quote parts of your book, which which jumped out at me. Um, related to to the very point you were making there. Um, The first is, Europe, as a term, performs the function of a religious incantation. Second is, not only is a united Europe not standing up against Russia, but individual member states that could and should have a stronger foreign policy are able to hide behind the EU's weakness and disunity. And the third is Germany uses the EU's weakness to justify its own inaction. I, I, you know, anyone like I, like I have done, anyone who's followed European affairs for, for a long time, even, even those who are sympathetic to to the project, know that this is absolutely true. Um, how aware do you think policymakers are and have been aware of this kind of uh, thinking? It, or, or is it naivety, or is it cynicism, in your view?
2: Perhaps it's neither naivety nor uh, cynicism. And all three quotes are particularly applicable to, to Germany. And, and you would have seen that I'm trying to cover way more than uh, Germany. But of course, it's legitimate to to spend a lot of uh, <laughs> one's book on Europe or this conversation on Germany, because it is, however reluctantly, the hegemonic uh, power, uh, right? Uh, I, I do write about France. That's true. Write but, about but, but I... in Europe. Go on.
1: But then, no, I would. I I would argue. I'm sure you would too. That that uh, yes, Germany hides behind this uh, this incantation. But then other countries hide behind Germany. You know, Italy, yes, Spain, of course. Yeah, absolutely. So, particularly
2: yeah. now, uh, or Austria, right? Uh, uh, yeah. Particularly now, uh, in a conflict with, with Ukraine. But so again, I mean, the, the current conflict, uh, and and mind you, all the three uh, quotes perhaps uh, are are uh, from the main part of the book that was written be, before the invasion, but. Uh, particularly the current conflict illustrates uh, that well, right, that Germany uses the EU's weakness to justify its own inaction. I mean, it's quite remarkable when you follow the current debates in, in, in Germany that Olaf Scholz and, and every member of his government uh, stress time and again that, uh, you know, this is not the time for uh, German Align Gänge that is, uh, you know, a separate, uh, special path for Germany. We need to do uh, uh everything uh in consensus with our allies etc while at the same time uh, in its reluctance to to uh, more strongly support ukraine with uh, uh, you know uh, military equipment with further sanctions germany is actually uh, uh quite at odds with uh, its allies i mean when you look at how much americans have done for ukraine it dwarfs uh, the efforts of of uh, Germany, that is the largest uh, European economy, of course, and, and Europe's uh, uh, reluctant leader. So I, I do think uh, that uh, that it, it it is the case, but I, I wouldn't say it's cynicism or naivety. It's, it's rather, I I believe it's the kind of misguided lessons that they uh, have learned from from history, and that is again something I I, I do try to uh, address. Um, in the book i mean the irony is that the germans forgot uh, their karl schmidt right and 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 understandably so because he was such a horrible uh, person and and he made such a horrible misjudgment uh, in relation to the rise of uh, nazism but but karl uh, schmidt is the one who who understood that you cannot simply Eradicate enmity from uh, from human affairs, and therefore you have to uh, think about how to deal with the challenge that Putin's Russia, for example, uh, uh, represent. Again, again, the, the, there is a quote I, I could I could uh, cite directly from uh, Carl Schmidt, and it's 1928, right? So this is before the outbreak of the Second World War, before you know, the Nazis take over and before Karl Schmidt himself becomes a, a Nazi. He he writes, it would be a mistake to believe that a nation could eliminate the distinction of friend and enemy by declaring its friendship for the entire world or by voluntarily disarming itself. The world will not thereby become depoliticized and will not be transplanted into a condition of pure morality, pure justice or pure economics. If a people is afraid of the trials and risks implied by existing in the sphere of politics, then another people will appear which will assume these trials by protecting it against foreign enemies and thereby taking over political rule. I mean, this is incredibly uh, uh, timely now, right? So if Europeans are not willing to stand up for their values, then you have uh, uh, that threatening Russia to take over eventually, uh, you know, uh, potentially large parts of, of of Europe and even if it's not uh, an open military occupation of the uh, rest of Europe I mean uh, if if Putin is allowed to get away with this then then uh, really uh, western Europe too would be just living in the shadow of of Russia so so that is about about uh, uh, you know the importance of of uh, standing up uh, for one's values which which is present in uh, Schmidt's thinking about uh, political community that it has to have a shared uh, purpose, right? And that that takes me to that point. You 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 cited Europe as a term performs the function of a religious incantation. I'm not convinced that that Europe can provide all answers uh, to to problems that that contemporary Europe that Europeans uh, face, right? So. German politicians need to think about also what is in German uh, national interest, uh, uh, what is in the interest of their uh, voters, and that too even in relation to Russia and and Ukraine.
1: Yeah. Well, you you have a whole chapter where you talk about the... I guess the 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 original reason for this this diplomatic approach, and and you 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 refer to how the Europeans have fallen back on this idea of the EU as a, as an attraction, you know, the power of attraction as opposed to to exporting its its values. Again, c- c- could you talk us through that th- idea?
2: Yes, so I I talk I draw on a on a short essay by David Martin Jones who criticizes kind of Habermas's approach to to, to uh, international affairs and again it's it's so so incredibly relevant so David Martin Jones coined this term that I like so much peace through conversation you know and Habermas interestingly just restated uh, that position in relation to Russia today which is uh, i mean bizarre a very sophisticated essay but i think again uh, profoundly uh, misguided Ivan Krastev had a short commentary that that also uh, i i think uh, uh, reflects on on, on this uh, predicament uh, well and that is that within Europe within the EU as such interdependence worked and I acknowledge that and I and I hope I give a fair representation of it in in the book uh, but where Europeans uh, and again particularly German politicians but French too uh, made a mistake they, they made themselves believe that, that same principle of interdependence can easily be applied to to countries powers outside of the eu and so this is where the eu is now so incredibly vulnerable in relation to china in relation to russia right because this interdependence didn't create a, a more peaceful a more prosperous a more stable world right when you uh, pursue interdependence with a country like Putin's Russia, then you potentially make yourself more vulnerable, rather than uh, you know um, somehow miraculously exporting your values, which is the whole idea of soft power, uh, Europe. And it's the same, unfortunately, in relation to uh, to China. There are no signs of of European uh, way of thinking influencing Chinese uh, politics. Right. So again, in the German context, that is the the, the misapprehension, I think, to some extent of their own history, uh, this uh, wandel Handel, the idea that the end of the Cold War uh, was somehow brought about uh, by transformation caused through trade. Of course, the story is is way more complicated, and what was important in that story, the demise of communism, was the the preponderance of the US kind of security umbrella uh, that was erected over Europe, and, and in that competition between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, uh, you know that it was quite clear uh, that the Americans were serious in, in their determination to defend uh, uh, the Western world, etc. So it wasn't just soft power Europe uh, that brought about the demise of communism.
1: Yeah. Well, th- th- I mean, this this, ide- this peace through conversation idea is you discuss this um, in your chapter on Central European accession where you see you seem to see the original sin in the velvet revolutions that allowed the communist elites to leverage their political dominance into economic power, uh, which eventually undermined credibility of EU membership with the wider population. And you have this very nice quote where you say the EU loves nonviolent revolutions. It sees its own beauty reflected in them. Of course, this begs the question and you, you know, you originally come from Slovakia uh, on balance would something bloodier, something more of a of a reckoning between the former communist elites and the rest of the population, would would that have been a better outcome in the longer term?
2: Oh no, no, something bloodier, absolutely not. I, I, mean, you don't want to present me as a bloodthirsty reactionary writer from Central Europe who dislikes the the EU.
1: I am. I am a liberal. Something more, something more confrontational than something, then. Something, more something confrontational.
2: That, yeah. I, I think uh, you know. I, I cite Martin Kroll, a brilliant a late Martin Kroll, a brilliant late, uh, the late Martin Kroll, a brilliant Polish uh, liberal. Who, who who wrote a book uh, uh, saying that we were all stupid, <laughs> uh, and, and I learned that actually from Timothy Garton Ash. He, he cites uh, Martin Kroll in a different context, and 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 what he wrote about was this uh, misjudgment of, of the challenges that the collapse of communism uh, brought about. Right, that that uh, liberals perhaps uh, were too quick to. Um, somehow accommodate the uh, former elites and then uh, Avitacker for example uh, uh, wrote extensively about the problem that ensued and that is that the former uh, communist apparatchiks basically translated uh, their uh, political capital that they had connections networks etc into uh, economic capital so they became uh, the new rich right and and that obviously legitimize uh, the, the new order uh, to some extent and then when you see for example uh, the Hungarian uh, developments that are that are quite typical of, of, of this problem. Everyone knows about uh, Viktor Orbán and for a good reason because he has damaged uh, democratic uh, governance in, in, in Hungary. Uh, but few people realized that what preceded Orbán uh, wasn't all that ideal either, either and that was uh, uh, the country immediately before Orbán's kind of uh, takeover, like almost 20 years ago now. Uh, the country was ruled by a social democratic billionaire, uh, Ferenc Giurciani, and 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 uh, his demise and the rise of Orbán uh, was triggered by Giurciani telling openly his party... Uh, uh, comrades that they've been lying to their people that it's all corrupt right and 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 they've been lying <laughs> morning and evening and 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 whatnot and and the same Yu was loved in Brussels because he was very uh, pro-european right but the country was not an ideal kind of rule of law uh, uh, democracy uh, right so uh, the, the, there was this problem that uh, the nominally left-wing political parties calling themselves social democrats were often just fairly corrupt kind of tools for politicians to enrich themselves. I mean, Slovakia, actually, my homeland presents another example of that trend where Robert Fico, who who was recently charged, actually, uh, and he was lucky not to get his parliamentary immunity removed... He also was the leader of, of what he called the Social Democratic Party, and, and he was loved in Brussels because he was uh, playing the game uh, most of the time as a pro-EU uh, politician, right? Uh, so th- there were significant challenges there, uh, and I think partly caused by perhaps that uh, revolution uh, being too velvet, but I am not saying that it should have been more violent. The the challenge of that transition was underestimated. Understandingly, so, of course, I, I don't know how it could have been uh, uh, done better, but uh, I, I, I think many of those legacies are not fully understood by uh, a number of fellow scholars who, who look at the process of uh, democratic backsliding. I have a problem with that very term because it somehow assumes that Uh, There was some kind of marvelous democracy in any of those countries in 1990s. uh, Then there wasn't, unfortunately.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: Yeah. Well, a, a constant theme and related to this uh, and a major contrast you draw in the book is between the seriousness with which the EU, and particularly Germany, managed the sovereign debt crisis and contrasting that with the light touch approach or lightish touch approach to uh, dealing with illiberalism and, and, and dealing with Ukraine. And I, th- I thought about this hard and I- I'm not sure it's so different because uh, even when it came to economic crisis, the EU never acts in advance. It, 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 it never, it always waits until it, it can see a crisis right before it, before it does anything meaningful. You, you saw this throughout the sovereign debt crisis. And, um, so isn't that the issue that Crimea, you know, the, the 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 take takeover of Crimea was something that was not big enough a crisis to react in a crisis manner. The same with dealing with uh, Viktor Orban. Um, h- how would you respond to that argument? I I might just I might just. Uh Shift the emphasis of your question,
2: if you allow, <laughs> because I just realized that, that uh, there is a term that we haven't discussed uh, uh, much, if at all, and it's in the subheading of my book, and that is sovereignty, right? And 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 it's a funny one, and I, I use the term by saying that that Europeans delude themselves thinking about the post-sovereign Europe, etc. Et but you know, like you look at any any textbook about the European Union, and you will learn. That, that the EU proves that that category is obsolete, right? Isn't that funny that the debt crisis you just described is called sovereign debt uh, crisis, right? And, and isn't that funny that that uh, that is one bit of sovereignty uh, that was not supranationalized, right, easily? <laughs> so the Greek sovereign debt remains Greek, right? Uh, and, and there are ways in which... Uh, Greece was assisted in, in making it more European, but I don't think that uh, you would be able to convince many uh, Greek voters that the way in which was done was to the benefit of of Greece. And so, sovereignty, to me, is a very useful category. And then again, Schmidt's definition of sovereignty, particularly in times of crisis, sovereignty is he who decides on the exception, right? So what happened uh, during the sovereign debt crisis? I I, I don't know whether I would say that Europeans were more serious or Germans uh, were more serious when dealing with with sovereign debt crisis and with other challenges. Uh, But what happened with the uh, sovereign debt crisis? When uh, the entire edifice uh, started to collapse, right? And uh, the EU is a strange polity that doesn't have a ruler, it doesn't have a sovereign. Then who decided on the exception? Mario Draghi, not the Italian prime minister, but the then president of the European Central Bank. So to me, the story is instructive in the way in which that crisis massively uh, eroded democracy in, in, in Europe. The, the, whoever the Greek voters uh, chose as their leader, uh, the country for, for a decade was led de facto by this Troika, right? the European Central Bank, uh, Brussels, uh, and the International Monetary Fund, and of course, for many people, Angela Merkel, ultimately, right? And, and I don't even have uh, firm views about the particular set of policies that were adopted many of those reforms may well been may well have been necessary uh, but but it is for the greek electorate to adopt uh, a, a strategy right uh, not for mario draghi and the ecb a uh, non-majoritarian technocratic institution to de facto rule uh, a country like like uh, greece right so to me uh, this is uh, uh, clearly a story that illustrates that the idea that sovereignty somehow no longer uh, matters is, is uh, uh, misguided, right? And and the, the very concept of sovereign debt uh, actually is is an illustration that even as a legal term, uh, sovereignty remains uh, absolutely necessary, right? So so who is uh, who who is responsible for national debt? Right, it's not the individual voters, it's not the government of the day, it's the sovereign nation actually that's ultimately uh, responsible for it.
1: Yes, uh, well, it's funny you say. It. I, I I would probably argue that Mario Draghi was the effective only sovereign because of a decision made by Angela Merkel not to take action. She played chicken with the ECB and she won. Um, So, yeah, he was... uh, Yeah, as was was the case, actually,
2: yeah. European politically uh, abdicated the responsibility and so there was no other actor left uh, but the ECB uh, to do something, absolutely. But to me, it's a marvelous illustration of the dysfunction of... EU governance, right? And it is one of those things that is kind of, I mean, I, I got frustrated with a lot of sophisticated EU literature where you have a sense that uh, colleagues smarter than me uh, delight in the complexity of EU governing structures, right? And then, uh, you know, develop these elaborate terminologies and, and scholarly apparatus to describe what's going on. But then you look at what what happens in, in the times of emergency, in the times of crisis, and and it's just not very uh, democratic, right? Uh, and, and as I said from the outset, my primary commitment is towards uh, democracy. I, I, I don't believe that uh, more Europe is always a better Europe. In the case of Greece, I think it would have been better for Greece and everyone else if, if Greece was allowed to extricate itself from the euro. In fact, it should have been bribed into exiting uh, the euro than, than having like a lost decade uh, and and uh, you know, like I mean, the youth unemployment is probably still in- incredibly high, and and they are uh, years after the, the the low point of the whole story. So yes, that.
1: Well, well, except except there, you, you make a you make a point about um, Hungary, for example, and you you're critical of arguments that Hungary should be either forced to leave or there should be some kind of exit. Um- Mechanism for Hungary and and your argument is that that would punish the Hungarians who want to stay in the EU, and that was the case in Greece too, right? That, that a lot of Greeks, in fact, the majority of Greeks, they didn't like the policies that were uh, imposed on them, but at the same time they wanted to, to keep the euro. So it, it isn't that isn't that the same democratic problem? Um, maybe,
2: maybe, but mind you, for, for I, I would 100. differentiate yeah. between exiting the euro, the single European currency, and exiting the the uh, European Union. Uh, uh, but you are right. I mean, there was uh, a strong uh, public support, and, and probably still is for uh, for the euro. But to the extent that that uh, the, the single European currency basically is incompatible with maintaining genuine control over uh, fiscal policies, uh, I mean, monetary policies. Of course, you you uh, gave away to. The European Central Bank, but even fiscal policies cannot be uh, independently pursued. I, I think it massively damaged uh, democracy in in Europe, and and I don't know. There is no easy way out of this, but but uh, I, I want at least to to be able to diagnose it. Fritz Schaub, a, a distinguished uh, German economist, is is an oddball who, who suggested a, a few years ago that the euro should be uh, dismantled in an orderly fashion. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is probably easier said than done. Uh, but I think at least at least that kind of conversation is needed, right? Uh, but, but uh, the, the, the continuing consensus, uh, particularly amongst EU scholars is that that the euro has been somehow successful. And I really don't see how that can be maintained because when you look at the political aims, of the uh, single European currency. And remember that all these economic projects ultimately had political aims. Well, the key political aim was to, to unite Europe even more uh, strongly, right? And, and uh, uh, at least to some extent, to uh, you know uh, equalize economic conditions across uh, Europe. Uh, and, and neither of those two aims uh, have been achieved, right? Like there is probably still today more hostility towards Germany uh, not just in Greece but in Italy in in Spain Portugal uh, than was say 50 years ago right so that's not not a uh, success story in my in my view and uh, uh, when it comes to discrepancies uh, economic discrepancies well Italy has has stagnated uh, uh, basically since the introduction of of the euro and and that's a large uh, economy right that, that matters a uh, Great deal. In fact, so we don't talk about the eurozone crisis for obvious reasons because we uh, are preoccupied with Russia. But I, I think that uh, it is not uh, it isn't gone, and and if anything, now the the economic challenges that the, the war in Ukraine uh, has created is likely to bring uh, that crisis back.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, the other crisis we haven't mentioned is, was the refugee crisis, or, but we've, we've touched on it. And, and it seemed to me you made um, you made an unusual argument for books in EU studies. Uh, when it came to management of the refugee crisis and migration generally. You say big developed welfare states rely on a shared sense of, sense of solidarity and, quote, as the boundaries became more porous or non-existent, the sense of shared responsibility for go- common good dissipates. And you also stress the importance of, of effective security. As I say, this isn't a fashionable argument in academia. Did you Have you met resistance to these ideas that... Uh, that was standard, for example, on uh, on the on on the centre left across Europe until quite recently.
2: I mean, whenever I present anything at conferences, I I meet resistance. But <laughs> what people will make uh, of the book we are yet to see; it only came out uh, last week. But mind you, the particular point that you just uh, made is not that uh, controversial. I, I I think I'm just not sure whether people whether people are all that keen. Uh, to acknowledge it but I cite two prominent scholars and both would be seen and see themselves as being on the left side of uh, politics. So it's David Miller of course who it, who is at Nuffield College Oxford and, and uh, he has consistently argued that when you think of effective welfare states, you need the national community uh, to sustain it right because only then people are willing to accept uh, redistributive uh, taxation policies, etc., and that you need a contained uh, policy to make it affordable and and manageable. And there is a very prominent uh, and certainly very uh, uh, left-wing intellectual and and sociology scholar, Klaus Offe, in in Germany, who made uh, uh, an argument like 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago, talking about uh, Entgrenzung als Selbstentflichtung, uh, that's the beauty of German language. Actually, that you can you can combine these different terms in in one, uh, in two words, and and that is he he talked about deterioration, uh, leading to desolidarization, selbstentwicklung, right, and and I mean that is not new. I mean the, that has been well understood by political uh, thinkers uh, in in the past. That uh, you, you know, if if you just feel. Uh, Attachment to humanity, then, then uh, your obligations uh, become unmanageable, and and uh, you end up not doing all that much. While if if your political community is fairly uh, clearly uh, defined, then then these redistributive projects like welfare state are are more likely uh, to be uh, maintained. So. I don't think that is that controversial. Perhaps what is controversial is to question the wisdom of Merkel's uh, policies in 2015. And I'm afraid that the more I read about Merkel, the more I uh, learned to accept that the image that she had, particularly outside of Germany, was quite uh, disproportionately Positive or at odds with what what she really was. There is a brilliant book by Robin Alexander, a, a journalist working for the Welt uh, newspaper in in Germany, uh, that is called the Getriebenen, That focuses actually on migration crisis, but identifies a pattern in in Merkel's approach to politics. She was not a leader; she was just driven. That is the meaning of the Getriebene. She was driven by ever changing public mood, and so she made arguments against. Uh, migration and then the public mood in Germany turned in favor of of migration and then she suddenly, without consulting even her coalition partners, let alone uh, European partners, she suddenly changed uh, the EU policy, the Dublin agreement. She opened uh, the borders and and this, the uh, situation just became uh, very chaotic, unmanageable, and the support for, my, for migration then in Germany and in Europe. Dissipated uh, very quickly. So you need to think about the consequences of your uh, uh, policies. Which Merkel, th- she was not strategic. I mean, th- it's the same, the same story. Uh, regrettably, it's even more important now. Uh, the, the the move away from nuclear uh, power, right? That was a kind of natural reaction to the disaster in uh, uh, Japan, and uh, people in Germany uh, started to get worried. And overnight she uh, changed uh, the entire uh, direction of, of Germany's uh, energy policy and, and we see the consequences right, of it today where she, she just made the country even more la- reliable on Russia, a catastrophic strategic uh, choice. right? So she was not really a leader uh, and, and yet at the same time she was celebrated in major Western American media as the leader of the western world etc. I mean she is very impressive i always found when watching her presenting etc that she seemed incredibly competent and a very effective communicator without charisma but very effective right it worked uh, for 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 uh, germans but uh, but uh, the, her major choices were catastrophic and they were not made in a kind of strategic manner that uh, the leader of germany let alone the leader of The western world should have uh, should have uh, done
1: yeah well you, you end the book by saying um quote europe's political elites will need to stop chasing arcadia the promised land of the post national or supranational democracy if they wish to regain popular support and uh i'd certainly agree with that but but apart from what they should stop doing what do you think they should start doing
2: well, it's very well observed because it is true that what I do mostly is to criticize what went what yeah. wrong and, and uh, I don't give uh, uh, prescriptions. Prescriptions are always harder than, than critical analysis. Mind you, the lack of prescriptions is kind of consistent with my approach. And the overall argument of the book. I do not believe in great revolutionary projects, right? That is my problem with the Maastricht Treaty Europe, that there was a kind of leap into a post political, post national, quasi federation. I do not think it is wise or helpful. To imagine uh, this kind of uh, bold uh, projects, the end of nation states, etc. Uh, but but yet, I, I would have uh, uh, prescriptions, and 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 the basic prescription is, you know, promise less and and do more, more modesty, less hubris, you know. More Europe is not always uh, the best answer. I believe it would be useful and desirable to see how democracy can be revitalized uh, at national level. National politicians can start by simply taking more responsibility for their actions. So, when you think of Germany, uh, then Germany should stop hiding uh, behind Europe. When you think of Poland, right, we didn't talk about that much, but of course, the challenges both in Poland and Hungary in terms of erosion of judicial independence and the freedom of the media and all these challenges are very serious. But there, I would say to my liberal uh, Polish friends, uh, you know, try to do what you can within the Polish national community rather than seeking uh, some kind of salvation from uh, Europe. So democracy is an open-ended project, an imperfect project. There are no uh, technocratic solutions to all its uh, uh, many problems. And I I think perhaps it requires courage now to think about a a, a Europe that promises uh, less and could uh, deliver more. I mean, I find it quite revealing and interesting that Macron now gave this major speech in response to the challenge of, of uh, Russia yeah, where he is saying to Ukrainians that Ooh, we'll find a new way of accommodating you outside of the EU. I think it would be wiser and more responsible to think of how to, to re- 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 reimagine the EU as a whole in a way that would allow the EU also to bring in Ukraine much earlier much faster than, than is, is conceivable in, in, in the current kind of uh, uh, with the current governing structure, so an EU that would be less uh, supranational, less ambitious in its never-ending march towards a quasi federation, would also be better equipped to deal uh, with the legitimate desire of, of Ukrainians to be to be brought in uh, very quickly, right and informally. Uh, so, a less technocratic Europe is something I would wish and a Europe uh, that is more uh, controlled by its uh, member states in its uh, nation states.
1: Okay. Well, as a a final question, uh, and it's my usual one, since this is a podcast about books, I have asked Stefan to recommend two books to listeners. One from his field and one personal choice. So, what have have you chosen?
2: Well, from my own field, uh, I, I love all books by Ivan Krastev. I don't always agree with everything he, he argues, but uh, particularly after Europe, uh, which is one of the recent ones I would recommend, uh, but any anything by Ivan Krastev, and, and the more general choice, uh, the beautiful kind of combined biography of four remarkable uh, Europeans, uh, Wittgenstein, Benjamin, Kassirer and Heidegger, and that is Time of the Magicians by Wolfram Allenberger, I, I read the book uh, a couple of years ago in in German, but it also came out in an English uh, translation. I, I strongly, strongly recommend it. Beautifully written, compelling stories of extraordinary lives and an extraordinary moment in in uh, European history that kind of redefined uh, the story of philosophy for for generations
1: to come. So, Time of the Magicians by Wolfram
2: Wolfram Allenberger.
1: Great. Okay. Well, I, that's that's a new one. So thank you for that. Um, today, I've been talking to Stefan Auer about his European Disunion, published by Hearst in May in the UK and coming out through OUP in the US during the summer. Stefan, thanks very much for coming on.
2: Thank you so much for your kind invitation. It was a pleasure.